You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Iran says Israel was responsible for sabotaging the Natanz nuclear facility yesterday, and Tehran promises revenge. Online plotting results in the arrest of a Texas man alleged to have planned an attack on an Amazon Web Services Center. Scraped data from LinkedIn and Clubhouse are being hawked online. Andrea Little Limbago from Interos addresses asymmetric power within cyberspace and how that plays out in warfare. Our guest is Giovanni Vigna from VMware on the takedown of the Imotet infrastructure. And the U.S. moves to fill senior cybersecurity positions. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, April 12, 2021. Two kinetic incidents of importance surfaced over the weekend. Both had at least one foot in cyberspace. In the first, Iran's Natanz nuclear facility sustained an apparently deliberately planned explosion and power outage Sunday, according to the New York Times. Iran had just begun on Saturday injecting gas into the new-generation uranium enrichment centrifuges at Natanz. Testing marked National Nuclear Day in Iran. A member of Iran's parliament said, quote, the blackout in Natanz on the anniversary of National Nuclear Day is suspicious and may be due to sabotage, while Iran is trying to convince the Western countries to lift the sanctions. End quote. While decrying the outage as sabotage and an act of terror, even nuclear terror, since Natanz is a nuclear facility, specifically one devoted to uranium enrichment, Iranian authorities did not immediately assign blame. Israeli media, however, unofficially attributed the incident to an Israeli cyber attack and cited anonymous Western intelligence sources as telling them that the sabotage had been a Mossad operation. Whether those sources were Israeli or from other countries is so far unknown. The Wall Street Journal reports that this morning Tehran did the same and promised revenge against the Zionists. So there's no longer any doubt about whom Iran sees as responsible for the explosion. The Washington Post quoted an unnamed senior U.S. official as saying, We have seen reports of an incident at the Natanz enrichment facility in Iran. The United States had no involvement, and we have nothing to add to speculation about the causes. End quote. Israel, of course, didn't and isn't expected to publicly avow any role in the incident, CNN, reading between the various lines, thinks that Israeli Army Chief of Staff Aviv Kohafi 
alluded to the operation in a sideways fashion a few hours after Iran reported the explosion when he said in a speech that Israel's, quote, operations throughout the Middle East are not hidden from the eyes of the enemies, end quote. He added, they are watching us, seeing the capabilities and carefully considering their steps, end quote. The Natanz facility, which Iran maintains, is a peaceful nuclear research facility, but which many observers think is a nuclear weapons development operation, has been subjected to cyber attack before. The Stuxnet tool, widely believed to have been developed by 2009 and subsequently introduced into Natanz in a joint Israeli-U.S. operation, disabled centrifuges at the installation by affecting the Siemens programmable logic controllers, used in the enrichment process. The other incident involved the arrest Thursday of a Texas man whom the FBI says attempted to buy explosives from an undercover FBI employee, allegedly intending to blow up an Amazon Web Services facility in Virginia. Bleeping Computer says that the Bureau identified the man's plans from posts he'd made in January on the My Militia site, A third party also tipped off the FBI that the suspect, one Seth Aaron Pendley, had communicated in a signal message an interest in buying C4, the record reports. C4 is a kind of plastic explosive which uses RDX as its principal ingredient. It's a military explosive that's also been used in terrorist bombings. The Justice Department said in a Friday press release announcing the arrest and the charges that Mr. Pendley explained in a signal message that he was planning to use C4 to attack Amazon's data center, which he felt would, as he put it, kill off about 70% of the Internet. Of course, to use C4, one must get C4, and one of Mr. Pendley's online contacts, one whom Justice describes as a confidential source, put Mr. Pendley in touch with a potential supplier, who was, of course, an undercover FBI employee. According to the Justice Department, quote, In recorded conversations, Mr. Pendley allegedly told the undercover he planned to attack web servers that he believed provided services to the FBI, CIA, and other federal agencies. He said he hoped to bring down the oligarchy currently in power in the United States, end quote. When he met the undercover employee on April 8th, Mr. Pendley picked up what he believed to be explosives, but which in fact were just inert materials. He had the undercover employee show him how to arm and detonate the phony explosives, and he then loaded them into his car, at which point the FBI arrested him. Information from both LinkedIn and Clubhouse is being offered for sale in criminal markets, In both cases, the data appear to be publicly available and to have been scraped. Both LinkedIn and Clubhouse have convincingly denied being breached. The data on offer appear to be what the media's users would have themselves made public. And finally, President Biden will appoint NSA alumni to senior cybersecurity posts, the Washington Post reports. Chris Inglis will serve as National Cybersecurity Director, and Jen Easterly will serve as CISA Director. Easterly was among the NSA officials involved in establishing U.S. Cyber Command almost 10 years ago. Inglis has served for eight years as NSA Executive Director, the second-ranking official in the agency. As the first National Cyber Director, a role created late last year by Congress in response to recommendations developed by the Cyberspace Solarium, 
His role will be coordination of civilian agencies' cyber defense and review of the relevant portions of their budgets. The position is outside the National Security Council, and so Inglis will not be responsible for overseeing offensive cyber policy as executed by military services and the intelligence community. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. The recent international law enforcement effort to take down the Emotet botnet has, by all accounts, been remarkably successful. Time will tell if Emotet's operators are able to reconstitute the botnet or who might step in to fill the vacuum left in the takedown's wake. Giovanni Vigna is director of VMware's NSBU Threat Analysis Unit, and he joins us with insights on what he and his team have been tracking. Emotet is one of the most prevalent malware, and uh, it has been around for uh, a substantial amount of time and has evolved in many different ways. I mean, this is common with malware. There are groups that are responsible for a piece of malware. Uh, Often they sell access through their malware, so like installation as a service. Sometimes they change their tactics. Sometimes they change their code to avoid detection, to avoid being profiling. So actually, it's a big part of any threat intelligence analyst to sort of, you know, follow this lineage and understand how a particular threat evolves. 
However, this particular threat was uh, egregious because of the size of the pool of machines that were infected uh, and the success that it had in collecting uh, victims and therefore data that was then monetized in many different ways from information, uh, personal information, access to credit card fraud, from banking fraud to ransomware. Uh, the whole system had different aspects depending on the time and place. How successful has law enforcement been in, in their takedown of Emotet? I think they've been very successful. Of course, you know, the, the real success in this operation is the apprehension of actual human beings. So this can really stop when people are in jail. Of course, you can also really destroy or destroy, dismantle, I would say, the infrastructure. And that's what we observe in our telemetry. So just to give you a little bit of background, uh, as being the threat intelligence group and uh, under my direction, we keep tabs on what we call the threat landscape. And so we constantly uh, look at data that comes from our customers, from the open source environment, see what are the most seen pieces of malware? What are the most common type of CNC communication? And we have, of course, Elasticsearch and a bunch of different algorithms to identify what are the most relevant threats. And we saw with the takedown, Emotet for being like the most obvious prevalent threat to completely disappear. And so this is a sign based on data, since we're data scientists too, uh, that actually the, the takedown was effective. However, we will only know in the months following when we will see, for example, arrests, convictions for actual operators of this type of threat. That's Giovanni Vigna from VMware's NSBU Threat Analysis Unit. And joining me once again is Andrea Little-Limbago. She's the Vice President of Research and Analysis at Interos. Andrea, it's always great to have you back. Um, you know, I am fascinated by uh, the asymmetry of power within cyberspace, how things in cyber allow folks who otherwise would not have been able to have the influence on the world that they they would have to have now. In the old days of you know building battleships and aircraft carriers, uh, you can have influence in cyber without having to build a battleship or an aircraft carrier, right? No, absolutely. And it really... It's one of those aspects, I think, of, of cyber that gets overlooked quite a bit. We, we say a lot, you know, this, the, the notion of asymmetric power, and we think, you know, very often of, say, North Korea and Iran, um, even Russia, if you look at their, you know, their economy size, to have really this outsized impact on global affairs. And, you know, it's really changing warfare and geopolitics enormously. I think much more so than is normally appreciated. I and mean, we have this big push right now on, on major power competition, and that it's 100% understandable. Uh, Absolutely, there are a lot of areas of competition going on between the U.S. and China. But I worry that we lose sight on how other 
trends may be going on, especially through this notion of asymmetric power and how that's also shifting geopolitics. And so um, that's just something that I've been looking at a little bit, especially when thinking about not just you know, through cyber, it's through cyber, but also cyber and emerging technologies and how they're, they're integrated together and how that's really changing the evolution of warfare uh, really, really quickly. It's one of those things that a lot of people think it's more so in science fiction, you know, 10, 20 years from now, maybe at the earliest, but it's really, it's going on now. <laughs> and so I, it would be unfortunate to overlook it. I think also it would be myopic because it's going to be disrupting all aspects of both, you know, national security, economic security, um, you know, global trends, all of those. It, it's having a, it's, it's reshaping a lot of different aspects of the world right now. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, definitely. And the one that I, I've been looking at a bit is just the use of drones in warfare. Um, and again, it's one of those things, you know, like several years ago, a drone was associated with an attempted coup in Venezuela, if, if folks remember that. And then we kind of didn't hear about drones very much so other than, again, and, and sort of these stories that were looking ahead. But what we saw over the last year where it was signs of drones being used in numerous regional conflicts. And you know, a couple of, you know, Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, the conflict going on there, there's drone footage that was identified as having a potentially decisive role in, in the outcome of that. And one, you can, you can think of both through the, the lens of warfare and that you know, some were even saying it to the point that it made tank, tanks irrelevant. And so not sure I'd go that far quite yet, but when you do have a drone you know, targeting tanks, it, you know, that mental model really does have to shift very quickly in looking at how technology is, is shaped and, and innovation or reshaping warfare. So that's just one example. Um, in the Tigray region in Ethiopia, there have been claims of drones there um, with some footage posted on social media in Western Sahara and Morocco, where there's a, um, a fight over territory, and that's actually this, you know, a lot of these are fights over territory, which is also a, something that's reemerging. And I think that this asymmetric nat- notion of power is actually helping that. There as well, there are some drones used in, in, in that regional conflict. And so that's just over the last year. And I imagine we'll, we'll see many more in, in the years to come. But when you look at that, so one, it's, you know, it's shifting the, the nature of warfare. But it's also shifting the nature of you know, who's making these drones, right? And so it gives the power to those who are the ones largely making all these drones. And right now, China really has quite a lock on, on a lot of that market. Although, for, in these conflicts mm-hmm. I just mentioned, some of the producers range from you know, UAE to Turkey or Israel. So it's, you know, there are a lot of different companies or countries out there making them. Um, and there actually, are, right now, are about 100 countries that have drone capabilities uh, on, on the military end. So it's not something that, you know, it's just a few and far between, um, because it's so much, you know, so because it's cheap to have a outsized impact, you know, it's, it's another area. Um, but you can imagine down the road, you know, what happens when, when drones get compromised. What about in terms of, of setting policy for, for conflict in general? <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking that, you know, a, a nation might have much less resistance to, to starting a war if, uh, we don't have to send soldiers. We don't have to send pilots. We don't have to send sailors. That all that right. can be handled by these, you know, remote vehicles and and even robots. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, there have been some studies already. I mean, there's some websites that track the U.S. usage of drones, which has you know increased quite a bit over the, over the last decade. And there has been some additional studies showing that it do, you know, by taking the human out of the loop, it does make people you you know policymakers, leaders, you know, less restricted in their use of it. And so I do think that there's a whole lot of you know, like human and ethical components that go along with it um, and more policies that need to be made to regulate basically the proper use and the, um, the, you know, the rules of warfare you know, going ahead and, and when, when might it be acceptable 
as far as when is it, when is it justified as far as within the terms of warfare and when is it unjustified. And that's, you know, that's something that's been a challenge you know, throughout history as, as technology changes and evolves. You know, what is just and unjust warfare? And this is, you know, the latest example. Um, and it's starting to get some attention, but, you know, there's a whole lot more work that needs to be done in that area because, I mean, it's absolutely right. When you, when you take your own human loss out of it, uh, it does alter the calculus. Very much so. All right. Well, Andrea Little Limbago, thanks for joining us. Great. Thank you, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. You asked for it, you got it. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Ha! Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. And check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence, and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.